this place that we started supporting everyone. Companies started working together to close the gaps. And we all just started having this space where we could collaborate for change on equality. The one thing we could collaborate on was equality. We could compete in business, but we could collaborate on equality. The one place that you could have JP Morgan and City and you could have Procter & Gamble and Unilever that we agreed that we would unite and collaborate and that women could support each other would be on equality. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Season four is off and running for the SIDCast. Welcome. It's Sid Finkelstein. This is the second episode of season four, and it's actually overall episode number 124. And my guest today is Shelly Zalis, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about her in a moment. An absolute powerhouse, fascinating person, a real game changer. I found out about Shelly, and I have to do a shout out right off the top to Jacques-Philippe Piverger. Jacques-Philippe is a former student of mine at the Tech School of Dartmouth, an venture capitalist today, and a previous guest on the SIDCast, episode number 109, October 3rd, 2021. Jacques-Philippe has a fantastic, really interesting backstory and accomplishing a lot of things of interest in his own right, and that's why we talked to him last season. But I asked him, you know, is there anyone that's really fascinating, really interesting, really changing the world that you think I might want to talk to on the SIDCast? He suggested several people, and in fact, this episode and the next one next week are with two of those people that Jacques-Philippe suggested. And as I mentioned already, it's Shelley Zalis today. Turns out when I look back at season three, something like a dozen of the last episodes, which is a lot in that season, were with women guests, whether they were former students of mine, you know, talking about imposter syndrome, trying to establish their careers in whatever way they can as they launch it, whether they were entrepreneurs, whether it's uh, Lucy Lieberman in the travel business of Valeria Allo, who's written this great book called Uncolonized Latinas, or Carol Fishman Cohen, who heads up a group called Relaunch, which is all about helping companies hire women that are coming back into the workforce and lots of others as well. So I guess it's something I'm interested in. And why am I so interested in? It should be something we all care about, obviously, but I just find it in this day and age, we're in 2022, that so many talented, super talented people have to struggle to establish their career or have to fight back against unreasonable issues, harassment, systemic issues that make it difficult for people to, to, to fulfill their potential. I mean, it makes me a little bit crazy. And so I keep returning to this issue of women and love to bring on the show role models, people that have and are doing kind of amazing things. It turns out in academia, there's a ton of research going on today on all sorts of gender issues, whether it's compensation differentials and opportunities, board representation, representation on the executive teams of companies. And so we need to talk about it. We need to learn from it. And Shelly Zale is like a perfect person to learn so much about the role of women, what it takes to get to the top. And not only that, but what she's doing right now. She's an entrepreneur, very successful. She was actually a pioneer for online research in the really earlier days of that sector. And she became the first female chief executive ranked in the research industry's top 25. She sold her company. She kept working in the company after the sale. And now for a number of years has been the CEO of 
the female quotient, which is an internationally renowned and recognized really movement, a company that's all about helping women advance and fulfill their potential in the workplace. It's really all about equality. Shelly works with Fortune 500 companies and impact organizations to try to advance equality in the workplace. And she does it so creatively. She has this signature pop-up experience called the Equality Lounge. And along with a lot of other activities, including advisory services, the Female Quotient has created an international community of women that are rising up to catalyze change. And she is a proud mentor to women around the world. She's a columnist for Forbes magazine. I think Forbes called her a chief troublemaker at one point. She's not someone that kind of sits back and lets stuff happen to her. She goes for it. You have to admire that. She's a co-founder of Hashtag C- Her, which is a movement led by the Association of National Advertisers to increase accurate portrayals of women and girls in advertising and the media. She's on the board of directors for Makers as well. She's very active in social media and actually around the world. She's been going to Davos for a number of years, the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, and has become actually one of the major players and places where people congregate and talk and learn and try to move the needle forward. When you talk to her, you say, whatever she would have done, she would have been successful. But the fact that she's dedicating her life, her career, her energies to advancing everything that can be done to enhance equality for women in the workplace is just really important. And when she sees something that doesn't make sense, as she describes in the podcast, she does something about that. I mean, how many of us things and we're wondering, why are we doing it that way? Why does that happen? Well, like true entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that see things that don't really make sense right away, they're thinking how to solve that, how to change that. And she's actually doing that as the head of the female quotient, building this organization. But also when things don't make sense, when there are things that are blocking the advancement of women and girls for that matter, she is standing up and doing something about that. So she's one of these people that's leading a social movement and having a gigantic impact, really a nice, engaging person as well. They just know she's having a personal impact and cares about that. So it was a really fun conversation. Let's bring Shelly Zalas right into the SIDCast studio and start our conversation. Shelly Zalas. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am really delighted to have as my guest today, Shelly Zalas. Hi, Shelly. Hey, how are you, Sid? I've been looking forward to this chat for a while because you've done so many cool, powerful, influential things that my students really, really care about. I care about it. In fact, I think just about all of my listeners care about it a lot, and there's a lot to learn. But I'm going to start by asking you why you walk around as the chief troublemaker. Where did that come from? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, first of all, I hate titles. So the traditional titles of CEO and SVP and VP, they seem so meaningless to me. So chief troublemaker kind of says it all. And (laughs) I've been well known to break the rules and make no sense and create new ones. So chief troublemaker just seems so fitting. That's called troublemaker. It's also called innovator. I want to ask you about the business you created to start, OTX. I don't know if it was the first, certainly one of the first online research companies. It was a big success. You ended up selling it. Why did you start? Where did that idea come from? So it was the first. I am the mother of that invention. So sorry, not sorry. If you've ever taken those horrible surveys on the internet, I was the mother of that invention. I have been in market research for over five years. For a really long time. Had my 60th birthday on March 24th. So I started in mall intercept research. So when we used to do the paper pencil surveys in central location and then telephone intercept, telephone research. And I had this idea to migrate research from offline to online in a day and age where only wealthy old men with broadband connections were on the internet. So it was way ahead of its time when really nobody was online, but I had a feeling it was time to migrate. So that's why I called the company 
company, OTX, Online Testing Exchange. So that's why I created that. Got it. But what were you doing before that got you? I don't know. Did you have other business you created or this is kind of the watershed one up until the female quotient, obviously? Well, I was in traditional research. So from traditional research, I started getting interested in infomercials. So I was pregnant. I had a baby. In the middle of the night when I was feeding the baby, I was watching infomercials. Because what do you do at one in the morning except watch infomercials? So I started watching infomercials and I was very intrigued by direct response of how they would have these direct response infomercials. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a cool idea. And then I started hearing about the internet and how that was starting to happen and how marketers were creating these websites, these 200 page websites. And I thought, well, that's so crazy. Why are marketers creating websites to advertise in? Nobody wants to watch these, see these 200 page websites. They're not creating programs to advertise in. And so I created these consortiums And I brought 10 marketers together to start creating these interstitials and split screens to start testing advertisements. So we started testing all these different ads from that. And I started doing website testing to start showing advertisers where they could cut their spots. And Mm -hmm. and then I had this idea to create online testing. And one thing led to the next. And that's how I got into pioneering online research. It's really interesting as I think about how gigantic that sector is today. Both my daughter and son-in-law are somewhat related industries, and it's enormous in every aspect. The crazy part was doing the platform for survey was the easy part. The hard part for me was the ecosystem of sample, because when you think about random digit dialing, RDD, and telephone sampling, do you know about research and sampling? Well, I do, and maybe for many of my listeners know it very well, but not everyone, so feel free to add a little bit. I'll break it down simply. So when you think about telephone sampling, the way we did the olden days, we did it from the white pages. And you used to have a white page phone book and it was called random digit dialing because you need a random sample. And they used to go through the white pages and randomly pick phone numbers so that you would randomly get a population. That's how we used to do it. So you get a random sample. So I thought to myself, how are we going to get a random sample of internet users? And so I closed my eyes and I remember, it's so crazy. I thought about Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. If you have an ocean, how do you get the biggest population of random fish in the ocean? And so I thought, well, I need to be able to pull people from different websites so that it would be random sample. And you got to be able to pull people like this. So I went around to all the different websites out there, but there was very few. Nobody on the websites had sample. And so I did a deal with all these website people. And I said, mm-hmm. listen, you all need money. I will pay you if you give me access to your sample. But nobody ever did this before. And I built this thing that I called a blender. I said, I'm going to put your sample all into a blender because I don't want one survey to just have samples from CNET and one sample to just have some. I need to mix it all up, just like random digit dialing. And so I took everyone's sample and threw it into a blender. And the first person that's 18 years old would go to this one and the next 18 to that one. Da, 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 da. And I woo, 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 like that. And that was what I called the blender. And that's how it all started. I also didn't want to be dependent on one website because I needed tons of sample. That is how the whole business started. And today it's a whole business. The sample business, online sample, it all started from that. Wow. It almost sounds like the way you see on TV, they pick the lotto balls. They all kind of get mixed up and then they randomly select six 
malls or whatever it is for that. So that's a pretty cool idea. And you were the first one to do it. I was. What was the biggest problem you had in getting this business off the ground? Everything. First of all, no one believed I was right. Everyone told me I was too ahead of my time. And I remember when I had the idea, I was working a company called ASI. And I went to my bosses and I said, you know, it's time to migrate research from offline to online. And my bosses all told me it wasn't the right time. I was too ahead of myself and we need to wait for the right time. A couple of weeks later, I was on a panel with the chief research officer of Procter & Gamble. His name was Larry Mock on the dais. And I was whispering to Larry. And my bosses, man, 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 were all in the front row. And of course, he was the number one buyer of market research and the biggest client of ASI. And I come off the stage and my bosses all said, what were you talking to him about? They were all nervous. And of course, as the chief troublemaker, everyone was anxious about <laughs> what I would say to the number one client of the company. And I said, well, I just asked him, when is the right time to come talk about online research? And they said, well, what do you say? I said, well, he said, come in next week. And my boss said, oh my God, that's amazing. They said, okay, well, Paul will go, John will go, Ringo will go, and Star will go. And I'm like, but what about Shelly? And they said, well, it's a boys club. So we think that's the best group to go. And I said, well, then if I'm not going, I'll cancel the meeting and you can all wait for the right time because you all told me there's a right time. And of course I went and a couple of weeks later, I left and started my own company called OTX. The rest of the story is history. There are a couple of great themes in there. One is when you have an idea, an entrepreneurial idea, you're working for a company and senior leadership doesn't like it, doesn't want it, doesn't know it's not ready. That's exactly what happened to you. That happens a lot. But then you also advocated for yourself. Anyone who knows you today would not be the least bit shocked. But this was a different era, really. It's 20 years ago, maybe a bit more. There was some risk associated with that, I think. There was everything wrong with it. I mean, and by the way, I didn't have the money to do it. I didn't think I would be right. And it was so ahead of its time. I had to make it the right time. They were right. It wasn't the right time. I had to build an ecosystem that didn't exist. And I had to build an online population. It's one of the things that I say all the time, you have to be the first, the second, and the third, because I was the mm. first that had to make all the mistakes and teach website how to create a sample universe and figure out how to build this blender, figure out an economic model, figure out everything with no funding and no model and nothing. Really, it was nothing. Then you have to be the second, which is copycat. I had to copy myself so that nobody else would. But when you're the copycat, you don't know what's under the hood. But I knew what was under the hood, thank God. And the third is the sweeper. They ride in on the white horse and they beat you at your own game. So I had to also be the third. I created the first. I started my second company when I had more funding. And I also so created the third after I sold it. And I've recreated myself three times. I've sold the same company three times so that I beat myself at my own game. I kept getting bigger, better, and stronger and building better, better, better. And what's really fascinating is by the time I sold my company to Ipsos, the third largest global company in the world, which I built a pretty successful company and I sold for $80 million, a young kid that actually worked for me and I already had built a successful router and sample business and taught the industry how to build an online, now online sample is amazing. This young guy that actually built the sixth iteration of a sample business left after I sold to Ipsos and built an even more successful sample business, sold for $1 billion. Wow. Hello. <laughs> what were you thinking when that happened? So proud. Yeah. I wish it was a woman, but that's what I'm thinking. Right. But <laughs> you played a role. So I'm hearing a lot of entrepreneurialism. I'm hearing a lot of not accepting the status quo. What did your parents do? Where did this come from? My father, may rest in peace. And my mother, God bless, 85 years old, that is like 30 year old. It is amazing. 
I'm one of four girls. My parents, truly, I mean, here, women can do anything. I'm one of four girls, just instilled confidence from the day I can remember. People say at the age of five is when confidence kicks in, just taught us to believe in ourselves and we can do anything we can imagine. My father was a cardiologist. My mother was senior policy advisor to Pete Wilson, the former governor of California, and actually started the first conference for women in the state of California, which is amazing. My mother was a teacher. But growing up, my mother did not have a full-time job. My mother was always volunteer, but running PTA, running everything. The most amazing role model I've ever had. Work never defined us. I mean, till this day, I don't think any one of us, none of my sisters would ever be able to tell you what I do for a living. Doesn't define us. Just instilled in us the confidence to be who we are, to believe in ourselves, to give back with generosity all the time and to live full lives and that work will never be everything we are. You have one life and that you need to be able to do it all. Your family, your work, your community, your friends and yourself and that you can do it all your way. And that's what my parents were all about. We chased total solar eclipses and my father never believed in wearing a watch. And that it's all about living in the moment. Like we never took pictures and lived our life that way. It's about that snapshot. My father taught us to live life with no regrets. You never want to look back and say, shoulda, woulda, coulda, and not to stash your money under your mattress. You live in the moment. And, and that's how I live. And that's how we all live, living in the moment with no regrets. That's a tremendous gift. Over time, I've learned that same lesson, but I can't say that I was brought up that way. And so when you hear it and that you had it, you learned that from as a baby, in a sense, as a little girl. Your sister's fantastic. Tell me what you think. When you live in the moment, I mean, you're breathing. People say you smell the flowers and all the rest. Yeah, you do that. Actually, during COVID, I saw the little buds coming up of all the little daffodils and everything else around the house, which I never spend any time looking at because you're sitting here at home. So you look and you notice and you know what? I like it. I like it a lot. And so every time you interact with someone, every time you're with anyone else, it's a single time that will never get repeated, even if it's with someone you see all the time. It's never going to be repeated again. It's not like you have to show off. It's not that you have to accomplish any great thing, but you just have to be present. As an academic, you go to a lot of conferences. And I remember as a doctoral student, those are the days we all wore suits to these conferences. And by the way, in Miami Beach, August, conference. And I remember wearing a suit and I thought to myself, this is not a good career. This is what I got to do. Anyways, you're talking to people at conference, you see the lanyard, the name tag, and you see people talking to you and then looking over your shoulder for someone else that has a more important name tag. Mm. And man, that I hate that. You know, that's why I don't have in any of my lounges badges, name tag. I will never have anyone wear a name tag because that really disturbs me. As we started, I hate title. I never want anyone to talk to someone because of their title or because of the company. I want people to discover people and to go over and say, hi, I'm Shelly. Who are you? Because I believe you learn something from everyone, not because of the title that you wear, but I learn something from everyone. And it's about discovery and curiosity. I don't care what your title is or who you work for. Spend five minutes with someone you don't know, and you're going to learn something interesting. That's what dimensionalizes us. And for me, if someone is going to look over me to see who else is out there, I'm not interested. I find that offensive. I'll walk away. And you know what else bothers me? And I have zero tolerance and zero patience. If you're sitting with someone for dinner or for lunch and they're looking at their phone, I'll walk out. If someone is making time to be with me, mm-hmm. And I'm sitting with them and they are going to be on their phone and I will leave. 
The reason why I'm doing this podcast, I joke that it's a side hustle, except side hustle implies you make money. I just lose money from it. But I do it because I love to do it. So I love these conversations, talking to people I don't know or I may have heard of, but I usually don't know. It's kind of like the image of your dinner party and you're seated next to someone that you didn't meet before and you end up chatting. And then you have a really great conversation and it sticks with you. So it's kind of selfish in why I'm doing this podcast originally, but at least I'm trying to bring this. That's where it came from originally. I love it. It's how you grow. It's what makes you so interesting. I met this woman that told me that you always invite one new person to a dinner party or Mm -hmm. it's how you stay interesting. You stretch yourself. Pre-COVID days, we used to do a lot of small dinner parties and typically invite people didn't know each other. I live in a small town, so everyone kind of knows something about somebody, but they didn't really know each other. You kind of match them up in a way you think they would have an interesting conversation. You said something about the phone, and so I'm going to go off on a tangent because I have been watching these three shows that have been on TV. There's one about Andy Newman from WeWork. There's one about Travis Kalanick on Showtime from obviously Uber. And of course, there's Elizabeth Holmes and Theros. There's a lot to talk about just with that little intro to that. But the reason I bring it up in the segue is I was watching one of the episodes on Showtime of the Uber series just last night. And the Travis Kalanick, founder and CEO of Uber, his girlfriend wants to talk to him. He's very upset about something. He looks at his phone and he says, sorry, I got to take this. And he walks up to the other room. And of course, they show her and she realizes that this is not going to work out. He can't move off the way through. Have you seen any of these shows? Did you know any of these people for that matter? I have met them, but I don't know them. I teach a case study on Theranos to my new MBA students that I wrote. I'll be rewriting it now because of all that's happened this past year. But the question always comes up, what is different about this story because the CEO is a woman? And sometimes I bring it up because sometimes students are not sure which way to go on it, but I bring it up and you get really, really interesting discussion that comes up. Some people, often they're women, are very upset with her because here's the most high profile Silicon Valley type unicorn CEO founder and it didn't go well. And it looks like some of it, if not a lot of it was self-inflicted. But I don't hear anyone saying that about WeWork, Andy Newman. I don't hear him saying that about Travis Kalanick and Uber. Those three, there's only one that's highly likely to go to jail also. So I know you've thought about this. It's central in some ways to the work you do. Let you riff a little bit and get your point of view about all this. It's always a challenging conversation and we shouldn't stereotype whether it's the male or the female. And, you know, same with Marissa from Yahoo when Mm -hmm. they made the comments about her being distracted because she had kids. Or when we talk about women's outfits, we don't talk about men and their outfits and the different personalities and women are too emotional and all these different conversations and putting them into buckets. So I don't want to generalize whether it's a male or a female because it really depends on the personality and how they lead. So we don't want to put them into a bucket of gender because it's all different cases. They are all different, but you can't help but remark that the downside is quite different for one of them. Yeah. But I mean, it is amazing that each of the stories are quite remarkably different. What happens, truthfully, is women are always cast in different ways. And that always the bias that kicks in and the stereotypes that kick in is also remarkable when we talk about different leadership perspectives. That's absolutely the case. I'm just trying to figure out how top of mind, and not necessarily these stories are, but top of mind, the gender is for leaders on a daily basis is what you do. And you think about and you combat those biases. Is it top of mind for women leaders? Is it top of mind for some male leaders? Here's the thing. Yes, it is. And oftentimes a lot of female leaders don't want to even be cast as, oh, 
well, you're a female leader. You look at Indra Nui. Did you read her book? I haven't read it, but she's a longtime CEO from PepsiCo. In her book now, she talks a lot about her role as a female CEO. And a lot of things as a CEO, she didn't talk about her being a female CEO. But now that she's gone, she talks about a lot of the challenges she had as being a primary caregiver and the challenges that she had. But yet she didn't make a lot of changes as a CEO for caregivers. But she had a lot of choices she could have made, but didn't. But now talks about it now that she's not the CEO. Right. You're saying where was she when she had the power? Is that what we're getting at? Yes. But then I say to myself, and this is what I'm saying today, I don't care if you're male or a female. I think as a CEO, gender aside, I want to talk about being a conscious leader. And I would like to take gender out of the equation and say, as a conscious leader, we need to make decisions in our organizations that are good for caregivers. And even for caregivers, I don't even like to use the conversation of caregivers as women Mm -hmm. so that we stop attributing it to gender. Because by the way, caregiving is still predominantly a female issue. But by the way, if caregiving falls on a man, it's going to be the same issue. So I'd like to start taking gender out of the equation, period and say that we need conscious leadership to start making decisions in our organization to close the gaps and that we stop making the exceptions around gender, but that we make decisions so that everyone can thrive in the workplace and that we create our companies for the marginalized. Because if we create a company for the marginalized, we will create the best organization for everyone. Indra, forget about that she was a woman. If we had conscious leadership making these decisions, for caregivers, we would actually close the gaps and not make them for the exception, but make the new norm. And then we would take the bias barriers out of the way. A lot of the decisions that we're making right now are not going to work. We're talking about these flexibility, three, two schedules or four day work weeks or whatever. And we're saying, oh, we'll make it flexible or elective. Well, guess who's going to take it when we do that? The people that are going to take it are going to be women. Well, if women take it, then we're going to create bias barriers again. Guess who will be in the office? Men. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to become the golf game again. The men will be seen. The men will be heard. The men will be promoted. They'll get the raises. The pay gap will widen. It's going to become an issue. But if we make where everyone has to take the four-day work week, everyone, but knowing that it's going to work well for caregivers and that becomes the new norm, then it will level the playing field. That's a really interesting perspective on something that many people think is a good idea. And you're talking about the downside, which is this added flexibility in our post-COVID era where people could work from home. It's quite interesting what you're saying, because who's more likely to want to or need to work from home? Whoever is the primary caregiver. But I'm saying so let everyone make everyone work from home then the same so that it's not elective, it's mandatory. So whatever you do for some, make for everyone. I understand. So that it doesn't say, oh, she's doing it. He's not. So we want him. We got to make sure whatever we're making for some, we make for everyone so that the sum doesn't become the bias kick in. These are the kinds of things we have to start thinking about. So we eliminate the barriers and we make those barriers the positive, not the negative. So we make it the strength, not the weakness. And by the way, the retention will kick in in such an amazing way versus the resignation. Which is hard to imagine anything more important now across the board, the great resignation world we're in. There's a bunch of things that come up from what you just said. Let's talk about parental leave for a moment. 
I have nieces and nephews in Canada and they get a year. It's called mat leave. They get a year. I don't think it matters if it's the father or the mother, or the man or the woman, whatever parent. And I think the second parent gets less time, but gets something nonetheless. Europe has something similar in most Western European countries. A study somewhere that said that this is actually a way to increase the likelihood that these talented people that are in their 30s, typically, or early 30s, or there's some range, that they're going to stay in the workforce and not have to leave. Therefore, think about from a public policy point of view, the productivity that you're going to get with that. In other words, it doesn't just pay for itself. It makes money, even though the arithmetic is always, well, here's what it's going to cost you to be parental leave. It's genius. Okay. And now think about your language. You said mat leave. Mm -hmm. I did. That's what they call it. But that needs to be fixed. Mat leave is maternity. It should be parental leave, not mat leave. Mat leave is mother. I'm going to ask my nieces and nephews about that because that's kind of standard. Men, women all say that, but they're absolutely right. All of a sudden, and lexicon matters, like it needs to be parental leave so that we stop putting a gender on it again. Because when we say mat leave, it already is assuming that it's a woman and it already puts in the bias because all of a sudden, then who do you want to hire? A man, because you don't want to assume the woman is going to be taking time off. And all of a sudden we think we better hire more men because we don't want to have a woman out of the office for a year. It's that unconscious bias. And by the way, I hate the word unconscious. If you use the word unconscious, you're conscious. So that pisses me yeah, off. That's actually funny because what you just described is very conscious because you said you're going to of course hire more men. You're thinking about it. It's a strategic thing that you're doing and you're making that choice. Yeah. And the year is pretty genius because your kid can go to school once they're a year old. So a year is a very important period of time because in all these new tech companies, they do usually the six months, six months. So if they have parental leave, there's six months for maternity, six months for paternity. But when it's selective, typically the women will take it out of necessity and the guys usually don't because they're either embarrassed or whatever, unless it's mandatory. If it's elective, they opt out. There's that mandatory word again. Interesting. Correct. These are some of the challenges. When it's mandatory, they stagger where the woman will take it for six months, then the guy will take it. But that only works if the couple, if it is a dual income family, they both work in tech companies because only tech companies really offer that. But if one does and one doesn't, then it's six months. What does the other do for the other six months? You have a lag. Now I'm working on another solution that would solve that to be continued that you and I said <laughs> to discuss. I am working on a really good idea to be continued. Are you going to share a little bit more on that? Or is this something we got to get back? No, we're going to tease it up. You're Students all have to wait for it. Wait for it, everyone. Wait for it to be continued. It's a good idea. We'll be following that one carefully. One of your core philosophies, I guess, is a woman alone has power. Collectively, we have impact. And I read that and I thought, that's pretty good, actually. That's true for, you don't have to even say woman if you didn't want to. You could just say a person. But I understand where you're coming from about that. There's several aspects of the idea that's kind of cool. One I want to ask you about is competition, because I think you've written a little bit about that, too. And I guess the idea is rather than competing with each other, the notion is that the way you really win is to collaborate. I'd like you to share a little bit more about your thinking about that and really taking on this deeply understood and believed concept that competition, certainly in America, in a capitalist society, competition is a great thing. And that's what we need. I don't think you're anti-competition by any means. You're a business person. You're a business builder. But when you elevate collaboration over competition, I think it's something to talk about. Oh, there's so many things to talk about. When you talk about the masculine and the feminine, let's start with that. 
the masculine and not men, women, but the masculine, feminine, the masculine is aggressive, assertive, decisive, linear. Those are all masculine traits. The feminine is more emotive, collaborative. Collaborative is a feminine trait. Passionate. Those are all feminine traits. Historically, women in business have been trained to be competitive because there's been such a scarcity of jobs at the top. So few women get to the top. We have been trained to be competitive. And for me, I was the only female CEO top 25 my entire career in market research. It's pretty lonely at the top. I never had a support system at the top. I've been by myself at conferences. You know, in market research, I know everyone. I've been in market research for so long. Put me there. I know men. I know women. Knock yourself out. But then when I wanted to get into technology, I wanted to get into finance. I wanted to break into other industries. I was alone in a boys club. And there I was, and no one welcomed me in. As a matter of fact, when I wanted to go to the World Economic Forum and the Girls' Lounge, when I started the Girls' Lounge, when I was invited to the World Economic Forum with world leaders, which was a dream come true for me to be invited, my invitation was as follows. We want you to come to the World Economic Forum, but you might not feel welcome. Wow. That's quite an invitation. Yeah. That was my invitation. And I just had launched the Girls' Lounge and we were already getting recognized. I'd already been to CS. I'd already been to Can Lions. My brand was getting pretty recognized. And now the World Economic Forum to get this invitation. Wow, right? It was going to cost me $250,000 to put my pop up there. I didn't have it. My head said, don't go. Intellectually, like, who wants to go to a place that I'm not going to feel welcome? My head said, you don't have the money. It's going to break your piggy bank. Mm -hmm. But my heart said, you have to go. At the World Economic Forum, it's all men. It's all financial world leaders. And less than 17% are women. I have to go. I have to take one for the team. Women have to show up there and it's going to be called the girls lounge and I need to put a shingle up. And even if the shingle is going to cost me $250,000, I need to be bold and brave and I need to have the courage to do this. And even if I'm going to be embarrassed and not feel comfortable, just take it for the team and you've got to go. I remember this moment very well. I called Jackie Kelly at Bloomberg. She was the chief operating officer. And I said, Jackie, I got invited to the World Economic Forum. I'm scared out of my wit's end. I don't want to go by myself. And you got to go with me. I'll come up with the money. Will you please go with me? And I said, we might be laughed at and we need to go. She said, I'll be there with you. We'll hold hands. Even if we sit by ourselves, we'll drink champagne and we'll be at the World Economic Forum. And I'm coming. And I'll never forget that moment. And we showed up and we put a little single up. It's at the girls' lounge. And all of a sudden, whenever women were at the World Economic Forum, came and they popped their little head in and they said, well, where's the hair and makeup? (laughs) And I said, I didn't have the guts to bring it here because I was nervous. And the next time, bring the hair and makeup because they were women that knew us from Cannes and knew us from wherever. Oh, yeah. It was really quite a remarkable moment. And some guys popped their head in. And next thing you knew, people started coming in. We were full year one. And then year two, a big financial service company said that they would have given me the 250 had I changed the name from the Girls Lounge to something else. And I said, no, I'm keeping it the Girls Lounge. That was our brand. And as I wanted women to know that this is a place for women. And I called it the place for the 17% year one. And then year two, companies started coming and we had doubled our space from 250000 to doubling it to $500,000. Year two, companies started coming. And then year three, quadrupled our space. And Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan came. It became a thing. And then the CEO of Citi came. 
and brands started showing up. By year four, we were the destination at the World Economic Forum. By then, the Girls' Lounge was a household name. We had 70 pop-ups at every industry conference. We were 50,000 women, biggest companies in the world, women supporting women. And once women started supporting women, and mm -hmm. you know the Girls' Lounge took on the Boys' Club opposite a girl is boy, opposite a club is lounge. And women were like, but we're not girls, we're women. I said, have you ever heard of a man object to being a boy in the Boys' Club? Why are we creating our own double standard? And everyone started accepting it. When you're brave and you just take the courage to start a new language, Mm -hmm. And women started loving the name Girls Lounge. At the beginning, they were weary of being girls, girlfriends. Then they loved it and they owned it and they became it. And they were not afraid to be women. It was the biggest, hottest thing ever. And once women were proud to be women and be collaborative and be feminine and own their strengths and not hide it and not try to act like men and bring their emotive powers to the table... It was game changing. Once women started supporting women, and I'll come back to collaboration, I decided now we can become a quality lounge. Women were the majority in the lounges, but now men, everyone started coming together and owning the power of collaboration. Women no longer had their guard up. It was like this place that we started supporting everyone. Mm -hmm. Companies started working together to close the gaps and work together. And we all just started having this space where we could collaborate for change on equality. The one thing we could collaborate on was equality. We could compete in business, but we could collaborate on equality. The one place that you could have JP Morgan and City, and you could have Procter & Gamble and Unilever that we agreed that we would unite and collaborate and that women could support each other would be on equality. Six years later, at the World Economic Forum, we have a double story now. We went from a little shack to a double story glass house at the World Economic Forum where it's standing room only. You have the Equality Lounge at the World Economic Forum where the who's who, what's what comes together. That's the power of collaboration. And it starts by starting. And it's scary as hell to do something for the first time when people tell you, you might not feel welcome, but you know what? You show up and you make yourself welcome. And then people come. That's how change happens. But if you follow status quo, nothing changes except the same old shit. You go in circles. That was a um, great story about history. Calling your friend from Bloomberg to join you as your comfort of having more than one person around. Also, I think very smart. But could you have imagined that it would get this big, like, as you just described it? Could not, Frank. Maybe in your dreams, but probably didn't even think of that far ahead. It's one step at a time. How does this translate to, I mean, that's Davos. That's a really big thing every year. But there's thousands, tens of thousands of companies around. And I know you work with plenty of them. So is this a concept? that is existing within companies that you're helping or people are watching and saying, we want our own equality lounge, that we need to create some equivalent of that in our own organization to provide a place for women to feel comfortable being women and advance their own leadership, their own success. It started a new trend. From that moment, every industry, the power of collaboration really makes a difference. You started with a woman alone has power, collectively we have impact. A company alone has power, collectively we have impact. You could say it about anything. When you share the good, bad, and the ugly, that's how you learn. That's how you evolve. We've taken it to every industry. In sports, I've created now consortiums in every industry. We do it at the World Economic Forum. We do it at Cannes, bringing media companies together. We do it in sports, bringing sports together. We do it in every category now. 
imagine in education, doing it in education. When you bring case studies together, that's how you learn. We do it inside of companies. We bring women together. It's how women share advice together. The best advice comes from women who have been there, done that. And that's why I don't believe in one mentor. One mentor doesn't have all the knowledge. You learn bits and bites of advice from different people who've been there, done that. Mm -hmm. You might go to one person to get carpool advice. You might go to someone else to learn how to bake. You might go to someone else to learn how to find the best school for your kids. I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to bake. I don't know how to do any. I can't get a cake out of a pan. Don't go to me for baking. Don't go to me for cooking. You learn different things. Don't go to me about digital. Go to young people. Go to different people for bits and bites of advice. And that's why I believe in mentorship in the moment. Don't go to one mentor. I have a million different mentors. And so it's the same thing of why the power of collaboration. You learn from different people, different things. It set a whole new model in action. We do lounges inside of companies all the time, bringing teams together to learn from one another and to have support systems. There's nothing more powerful than that. Everyone understands the concept of networking. And the word work is a network, of course. How is this different other than being bigger and maybe more inclusive? First of all, I don't even like the word networking. Network is you shake someone's hand. It's all about relationships and trust. Network doesn't elicit trust to me. Network is, hey, hey, hey. You know, relationship, it's trust. I think there's something really important about trust. And so our lounges seem to have a consistency because we do these pop-ups at conferences that also have a lot of the same people that come quite a bit and they're safe spaces. So if you're at a big conference, you might network at a conference, but when you're Mm -hmm. in a lounge, you kind of hang out and it's also so informal. We have panels and we have the who's who, no badges. And so you have this real intimate relationship with the speakers, with the experts, and everyone is approachable, but you also meet unbelievable people. And so if you're going to a conference, you don't know anybody, you're going to end up leaving our lounge with five new friends. And so you're never alone. When you have five people that now you know, you are like the most popular person, like somewhere. That's a confidence builder. And that's why I really started the lounges. I used to be alone. And I remember going to Cannes for the first time as a researcher. I felt like a schlepper. You go to the dinner that everyone is invited to and you're sitting at like a schlepper table. You don't know anyone and no one's going to invite you into their circles. Networking, you're standing at a cocktail party with nobody that knows you. You're not going to break into, hey, I'm Shelly. I'm a market researcher. You're the bottom of the totem pole when you're with CMOs. No one's going to say, oh, come be a market researcher. I want to know you. Come to these private parties. No one's going to invite you. And I remember walking on the closet back to my room saying, how am I ever going to break into this circle? No one's going to invite me to the who's who parties. So when I went to CES, I'm like, I don't want to go by myself. I don't want to be alone. That's why I invited five girlfriends that invited five girlfriends that invited five girlfriends. That invited five. It was the same concept. But now everyone knows there's going to be a lounge. You go to a lounge, you're going to meet all these great people. When you meet great people, you're then walking on the closet. Everyone's going to say, hey, Shelly, hey. And then they're like, who's that that knows all these people? All of a sudden, you're Miss Popular. And by the way, that's confidence building. And all of a sudden you're the who's who, what's what. And as a woman, by the way, that's important. And that's visibility, which gives you notability, which gives you power, which, wow, she's something. I want to know who that is. That matters. Right. I mean, I can see that. I've been in no shortage of conferences over the years, occasionally when I know nobody. And I wouldn't mind having a little place to go. You come to the lounge. Now I know to look for one, if there is one, wherever I'm going. There's always one. Have you broken into academia as well? You made me think of that because I go to a lot of academic conferences. 
No, but we want to. We were doing pop-ups on university campuses and it went over really well. We loved that. I would love to have permanent ones, but it was too expensive. And then Bank of America, which is a great partner of ours for recruiting, would call us and we started doing pop-ups for recruiting, which was a great idea. Pre-COVID, we were doing tons of pop-ups in HBCU schools and schools all over, actually all over the globe. We were doing pop-ups wherever people wanted to do recruiting. So instead of them just having a little desk, we would actually do lounges and do two-day pop-ups for recruiting and doing panels and conversations. And it works really well. So we need to get back to that because women loved it. And it was a great way for our partners to do recruiting on campuses, getting to know students. So we have to get back to that, but it works really well. Yeah, I could definitely see a need for that in a lot of universities. Business schools are very tight in many ways already, but as soon as you go beyond a certain number of students, you only so many people you know, and there's a lot of schools where people are not living in beautiful dorms, they're commuting and et cetera. And a lot of those people, they're doing that because they probably have a job on the side as well. And so their time is ultra valuable. And so I wonder if it's a way of breaking through and creating some type of social capital, if you will, for people that have, that have less socioeconomic opportunities. But even like business students doing pitch competitions with brands, I mean, there's so much that we can do, especially with women and women of color and being seen in all new ways. It's a big idea. So you're involved in a lot of different things under the umbrella of the female quotient. You've been focusing a lot on the girls' lounge, the quality lounges, it's now called. Given where you are now, you've been doing this for a while. You've shared your age. You probably have another 30-year timeline in front of you of hard work. Should you Thank choose you. to do such a thing? Should you choose to do that? What do you want to see accomplished? What do you want to do? What do you dream up next to take your little project that's become a big thing into a new place or do something very different? What do you think about it? Well, I'll never retire, that's for sure. As my father used to say, I want to be ageless, so it'll keep me young. I'm working on another project right now, which I'm pretty excited about, which will be at the CEO level. I've been working with CMOs, which is the power of collaboration. That's what funds our lounges, bringing more of the C-suite CMOs together to talk about how we're going to activate the solutions for change. And I've been working on power of connectivity, which has been our global exchange, talking to women in over 100 countries, listening to hear of what they all need to close the gaps. And so we did that during COVID virtually. I've been hosting virtual dinner parties. And now I'm working on the power of action, which is what we're going to be doing with CEOs, because I think that's the only way to really close the gaps inside the workplace with some new CEO lab, which is what we'll talk about, which I'm pretty excited about, the to-be-continued piece. I'm going to put a lot of effort into that right now. I have a book coming out that I've been writing. Well, it's actually written. I just have to launch it, which I'm kind of a walking book because I keep writing new, <laughs> new pages. So I've never really wanted to write something, but I finally did it. So that's waiting to come out. So that's exciting. Even the second book is ready to come out now too, which is this new one coming out. I don't know. I have so many things. Like I'm the co-founder of See Her. If you could see her, you could be her. So we do so much with women. Title IX, 50-year anniversary. And I want to really start working with female athletes on college campuses with their NIL. We need to start working on that right now. You said NIL. What is that? Well, naming rights. With everything going on, we have to really start teaching. With the change of the college level, with the ability to brand yourself and make some money off of that. Yeah, they all need to understand their rights. 
because that's like a whole new area. So we got to work on that too. So many things to do. And that's really, for me, I'm all about impact. And this is my give back in life. Just important to me. It's legacy for me, helping women. And I help women all over the world. And right now, helping a lot of women in Ukraine, you know, the refugees, that we got to start reporting some war crimes. I help women in Afghanistan. We've been instrumental in helping so many women. I'm helping female founders right now. So many female founders and advising so many women. It's just what I love to do. I was going to ask you what's the most fun thing you do, but I think you just kind of answered it as in all of the above. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a grandmother. So I have a little wow. grandson and I'm planning my daughter's wedding. So she's getting married in Nashville, Tennessee. Those are really exciting things. My daughter got married well last year. Uh-huh. And it's quite a thing to plan a wedding. Congratulations. Thank you. Plan a wedding when the world is being racked by COVID. But luckily, we had a little window and the vaccine just showed up magically. Talk about a compliment. Where did she get married? In a little town called Roswell, Georgia. Wow. It's a northern suburb of Atlanta. That's wonderful. It's the greatest. Uh, <laughs> but I don't have any grandchildren. And she's listening to this, so she's going to be mad at me for saying such uh- a thing. But she's only married a year, so what can I do? Okay, soon, soon. It's wonderful. I'm in big trouble for bringing this whole thing up on a podcast, no less. But okay, last question for you, Shelley. It might be tricky because you've spent so much of your career doing this, but it's an advice type of question. Okay. And it's the advice you'd give to yourself. If you could magically go back to when you were, say, 20 years old and whatever you're doing when you were 20, and obviously you've grown and done all kinds of things and you know so much more than you could have or anyone would have known at the age of 20. But if you can magically go back and lean over to the 20-year-old Shelly and say, you know, one bit of advice I want to give you, young lady, this is it. What might that be, advice to yourself at the age of 20? Number one, I would have invested my own money in myself. (laughs) I would have taken that (laughs) risk because I would have known it would have paid off. So I would have taken Nielsen's money. I would have taken my husband and my father's money. Uh, That's for sure. (laughs) That's definitely practical, to be sure. Were you in a hurry when you were young, when you were in college, let's say? Like a lot of people I know, and that's certainly the case for college students at places like Dartmouth, they're in a crazy hurry. I think they're too much in a hurry. I actually thought that I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. I thought I'd be PTA president. I didn't think I would work when I had kids. I had no idea that I would be where I am today. I thought once I had kids, I would be a stay-at-home mom. I did not think I would be able to travel and do all those things. So I think my younger self, I would have said, you can do it all your way. I did think I'd discover that early enough, but I would say you can do it all your way. I also would have said, believe in yourself and be yourself. I did figure that out quite soon. So all the advice I am giving my younger self, thank God I discovered very quickly. And Mm -hmm. the other young advice is find a partner that is an equal partner. I think that is so important. Like, thank God my partner, my husband was the one that looked at me and I did not understand this then, but he's the one that said, I want you to be a working person because you're going to want that for yourself. And it's because he had a mom that was a working mom. Had he not have had a working mom, I would not be working today. But didn't he see that though in you? You're going to need it for yourself. I wasn't like this then. Mm. My mom didn't work when I was growing up and I wanted to be like my mom. I was going to be running non-for-profits and helping the school and I would have been like my mom. My mom only after all of her kids were out of the house did she take a full-time job. My mom was a stay-at-home mom raising her children. So I would have been the same like my mom. My husband's mom was a single mom and was a full-time working parent. 
it's because of my husband that I worked. I wouldn't have done that. I've heard something like that, except the opposite, from one or two people that I've interviewed in the podcast, where, in fact, it took a long time, but a marriage ended because of a lack of support. In this case, it was a woman. She was being held back, and it kept bothering her, and she kept trying, and didn't just not get support to go for a big job, but get ridicule and questioning. And then something just eventually it stopped, and she decided this can't continue like this. You know, it's also interesting because my generation, none of my friends worked. Hmm. I grew up in a community where my kids were all in private day school and most of my friends were non-working wives. And so I was in my community, the only very rare to be a full-time working, traveling mom, but we needed it. My husband was a surgeon, but at the time he was a resident with no income. So he made very little money. I needed to work. It was tough. I mean, really raising our kids where both of us, we needed to work. We needed a double income family. Right. And so it was pretty crazy, but it was not easy. We both needed to have our salaries. Because you were different than so many of your friends, I guess, because you were working. I mean, how did it make you feel? I loved it. I loved working. Great. But I had to find a lot of shortcuts. I didn't bake the cookies. I would buy them, but make them look nice on the plate. I wasn't on committees because I wasn't a good committee person. I would just say, give me the assignment for PTA and let me handle it. I didn't do carpools that didn't work for me, but I got clever to hire the teacher, which was a great shortcut that was reliable and didn't cancel and change the dates all the time. I'm the queen of shortcuts. That worked really well for me. And today I'm so thrilled. Like it was the greatest decision I've ever made or that my husband helped me make working. And we were great partners and today we're still great partners. And it's the best decision we made because my kids are all independent entrepreneurial kids. It was amazing. But who knew how that would play itself out? But it was amazing. You never quite know. There's so many things that go into what a child becomes, including their DNA that we may give them, but we don't control. <laughs> but we were fully present. We divided and conquered. And that's why that shared partnership. Yeah. We had great rules. Like if one of us was traveling, the other one wouldn't. It turns out because I started my own company, I was the one that was traveling more than he was. But we had amazing rules of the road. He was in charge of finance and sports, and I was in charge of everything else. And if he had to travel, I took over his responsibilities. Of course, my kids, when they played ice hockey, their ankles would wobble because I couldn't tie the skates tight enough, but neither one would complain. Like we had great rules of the road. And till this day, mm -hmm. we share responsibility of everything. And that is how we both were successful at work and successful at home. It worked. Very consistent with what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation about individual might have some power, but it's collectively, it's the combination that gets of you course. the impact, gets you things done. Even on a very micro level of a couple, let alone all the other things that you've seen in action. Shelly Zalis, thanks a lot. I mean, it's been fun, really fun. I know we can keep talking. No, we can. I was like seeing how many meetings I'm probably missing, but... You're just warming up now. It's just you are such a pleasure to speak with and so interesting. I want to interview you now. I am available. It would be my pleasure. I never think, I never believe ever that I could get 100% of a person in one hour, no matter who the person is, let alone someone who's done all the kind of cool stuff you've done. And so I don't worry about it. It's kind of like when you go to Europe and you have your list. I got to go see this museum and that. Maybe you did that first time you went somewhere, but I stopped doing that decades ago. I just breathe and live, talk about living at home. Whatever happens is good enough because it's good and no one's keeping score.
You know, it's why my father never wears a watch because he never wanted to be somewhere because the watch told him he needed to be. (laughs) He would get there when he would get there and he would never go on a motorboat because he didn't want a destination. He would go on a sailboat. Wow, that's so interesting. It's funny because my watch doesn't tell time. I just like that it looks pretty, (laughs) but I never look at my watch. Yeah, well, we have a generation of Apple Watch people that have in front of them all the time. Until then, nobody's wearing a watch, FYI. And then Apple brought it all back, other than the high-end, beautiful, like, jewelry items. But anyways, we're getting off topic. It's time to say goodbye. Shelly, thanks a lot. Really enjoyed this. Such a pleasure. We'll need to make an annual series to kind of keep track, but we'll do what we can. Thank you. Shelly Zalis. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.